asking the Dubai Financial Service Authority about ESG, regulating crypto, interacting with the Basel Committee and regulatory reporting. Hi, my name is Justin Pugsley. I'm editor of Global Risk Regulator, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast series about financial and banking regulation. For more about GRR, please visit globalriskregulator.com. The Dubai Financial Service Authority, or DFSA, and the special financial jurisdiction it oversees has witnessed spectacular growth and development. Today, the DFSA is involved with most of the global systemically important banks, has close relationship with the world's leading supervisors and interacts regularly with the main financial global standard setters. It is also deeply involved in establishing rules governing ESG and crypto. All these topics have been covered extensively in GRR. And if you're not a subscriber and would like a free trial, please contact my colleague Ella Jacob at ella.jacob at ft.com. To discuss the DFSA's regulatory work, I am delighted to welcome the authority's CEO, Brian Stywald. Thank you, Justin, for inviting me here today. I'll start with a little bit of history and we'll work our way into the, the culture of the center sure. and what we're, what we're doing. But um, the Dubai International Financial Center um, uh, is physically 110 acres of land um, in the okay. Emirates of Dubai, uh, in the UAE. And, and it's a, a critical part of Dubai's um, a long-term goal of diversifying uh, its economy. Um, uh, and I think a, a successful um, uh, part of, of, uh, of the diversification process. Um, so the DIFC um, uh, really exists uh, as part of the, the vision of His Highness uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, uh, the Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE Ruler of Dubai, um, uh, to, to bring brick and mortar financial institutions um, uh, the globally active players uh, into Dubai, uh, where um, before the center began, um, the bankers and financial institutions were coming back and forth to Dubai doing suitcase banking, we'll say. Um, so he asked a, a series of questions, as he normally does, of why don't these people set up an office here? Uh, and he got a list of answers of this is why they won't. Um, uh, and so he set out, uh, uh, as again, he normally does, I'm going to solve all of those problems if they'll come. Uh, and he probably received some skepticism and maybe even some laughter at the beginning, thinking you can't solve all those problems, but he did. Um, uh, so the DIFC was created um, uh, under the UAE constitution. Um, it's designated okay. as a, a federal financial free zone where the commercial and civil laws uh, of the UAE are lifted off of this piece of land. All legislation here uh, has been uh, drafted in a bespoke manner um, to apply only to, to this 110 acres. Um, criminal law still is uh, in the UAE. That hasn't been lifted. Um, uh, so that gets into the issue of anti-money laundering, um, where um, we truly are um, uh, on and offshore at the same time. I guess you could say. Okay. Um, uh, so, uh, so we wrote all of our own legislation. Everything is common law um, uh, uh, oriented. It's benchmarked off of the UK. We have our own court system. 
uh, we have a regulator and we have an administrator um, uh, of the center. Those three bodies um, put the backbone of the center together. Um, uh, we regulate um, uh, on international standards of, of regulation and supervision. Um, we're yeah. primarily a wholesale financial center. Um, so we, we were set up to bring new business here, not to compete with business that was already here. Um, and wholesale finance is the area where um, suitcase banking was the most prevalent. Um, so okay. starting 17 years ago with nothing, um, uh, we have now um, uh, achieved more than 2,600 companies that are in the center, more than 25,000 employees um, uh, work uh, on this 110 acres of land. And we regulate just over 600 um, uh, of those 2,600 companies. I think you said in a previous conversation um, that, that operating um, in, in the DIFC has a fairly similar feel to what it might be like to operate in the you know city of London, especially in terms of the you know principles-based regulation and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, is that is that is that the case? That is the case. So I mean, even the Dubai Financial Services Authority, the FSA, um, uh, was benchmarked off of the UK FSA, which now doesn't exist anymore. But uh, sure. um, um, but but that was the original setup. And so being a common law jurisdiction with, with our initial legislation benchmarked off of the UK, um, for many financial institutions, it is just like they're outside London in a legal sense. Yeah. Um, uh, than it but is the weather's nicer. <laughs> but the weather's much nicer. Well, and, and yeah. until, we to, until we get to August, and then we might change. But, uh, but yes. Yeah. Right. yeah, it gets a bit hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 Brian, thanks for that um, that good overview. That that's that's really useful. Um, okay, so let's dig a bit deeper now. Um, so, could you talk a bit about? I mean, you know, you're an international financial centre. So, could you talk about how the DFSA interacts with other supervisors across the globe, uh, and also uh, particularly for overseeing the globally systemically important banks, of which I gather you have quite a few um, with, with with offices there. Yes. Um, so we have now we have 33 banks um, that are that are licensed in the in the DIC. And when I say the word bank, meaning they can take deposits, um, uh, okay, uh, we 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 are not allowed by law to take deposits from the UAE, um, but we can take deposits okay. from, from anywhere else in the world. Um, so those 33 banks um, have just under 200 billion uh, in in dollars in in total assets. Uh, and we have now, I believe, 25 of the 30 uh, GSIPs, <clears throat> the systemically important okay. banks around the world. Now, yeah, I say that not not all 25 uh, are here as a bank. Um, so some of them are here as a commercial bank taking deposits. Others are just here in terms of wealth management. But 25 of the right. 30 GSIPs have a presence uh, in the DIFC. Those big global banks. Um, I mean, they you know they're regulated by the, the, the you know the US, EU, and UK regulators and Jap Japanese and so on. So, can you talk a little bit about how you interact with the supervisors in those jurisdictions to oversee these banks? Absolutely, because none of the banks are here as a startup bank. Um, that we don't do that. Um, so all of the okay. um, all of the banks that are here are part of a global um, network. So you're. Your large banks of Citibank, of HSBC, of Deutsche Bank, of DBS, yeah. um, uh, they're all in the center. 
um, uh, as most most of them as a branch um, uh, of their of their home office. And being a, a host country regulator, um, that we we make communication with the home country um, a, a critical pillar of our supervisory efforts. So. Um, we now have over a hundred memorandums of understanding with regulators all around the world that allow us to um, to exchange information, um, and those okay. are only the starting point. That allows us to share. Um, uh, what's critical to us is we actually use them um, uh, to share information. So we communicate with regulators around the world on a frequent basis, on a daily basis. We're communicating with 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 someone uh, around the world, um, uh, and. Yeah. As a as a smaller host jurisdiction, part of the uh, the larger global system, that we we view it uh, as our own personal responsibility um, to communicate outward, um, and so we take that um, uh, very actively. Um, we also participate in about twenty five supervisory colleges, um, uh, and so this is um, uh, for all of the regulators um, of the large banks around the world. That, uh, typically once a year, all of them gather together um, uh, and discuss the activities that are happening in their jurisdiction, the issues they're having in their jurisdiction um, uh, under the umbrella of the host or the home country um, uh, supervisor. Um, uh, and that is a critical element of our supervisory regime, too, to make sure that we're not lost in the woods, you might say, um, that, yeah. uh, um, that we're part of the global um, uh, supervisory network. Um, uh, yes. there. In addition to those supervisory colleges, we do uh, periodically we do joint risk assessments with a home country um, where they might come. Here, um, uh, they might come here to do a, a part of their risk assessment, um, uh, or we we cooperate and communicate back and forth um, on a particular risk area. Now, I just want to talk a bit about your work now with the global standard setters. Now, I know you have some involvement with the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. Can you talk maybe about the Basel Committee, what you do there, and also the, the work that you do with other with other global standard setters? Absolutely. So, for me personally, uh, um, I am the co-chair, um, uh, along with Kuban Naidu from the Reserve Bank of South Africa, uh, I am the co-chair of what's called the Basel Consultative Group, um, which is the, the outreach arm of the Basel Committee on Bank Supervision um, uh, to reach out to non-member jurisdictions. Um, and as a result of being a co-chair of that group, then I, I'm an observer um, uh, at the Basel Committee meetings. Um, and my, my primary mission is to make sure that the Basel Committee um, uh, hears um, the concerns of non-member jurisdictions um, uh, whenever they're um, developing their, their standards. And so one of the biggest issues that we forward um, uh, at the Basel Committee, and we're doing quite a bit in this area this year, is the issue of proportionality. Um, that, uh, um, and there's a common uh, description, uh, I guess, that the Basel Committee is the the standard setter for internationally active banks. Um, uh, but yeah. oftentimes it's confused as being the international standard setter for all banks. Um, uh, and when it got its start with Basel I, the first capital uh, accord, that, that was a relatively simple um, uh, capital agreement that was easily implemented by every jurisdiction. But of course, Basel III yeah. is not so easily implemented by every jurisdiction. 
Um, uh, and that really brings the difference between large and small jurisdictions and internationally active and non-internationally active uh, banking systems uh, to play. Um, uh, so I am a, a voice of the non-member countries um, uh, to say that some of these standards, while they might be easy yeah. for JP Morgan, um, uh, it's less easy <laughs> um, uh, for, uh, for a smaller country to, to implement. Um, uh, and so we put forward with the, the differentiation, still achieving the same goal, still achieving the goal yeah. of adequate capital, strong liquidity, um, but in yeah. a proportionate manner. I mean, do, do you mind elaborating a little bit about some of the difficulties uh, maybe non-member countries are having with Basel III? Just just maybe elaborate a little bit on that. That would be quite interesting, I think, for, for listeners. Well, if you, if you have... Um, uh, you know, the, let's use an example of the fundamental review of the trading book. Um, yeah, uh, that's a big one. So, so that is a major issue for the top 20 banks in the world, maybe even the top 50 banks in the world. Um, but for the rest, <laughs> um, uh, if, if, if you tried to implement that verbatim in every country in the world, you're going to spend a lot of time um, putting a a set of regulations in, in effect that don't have any risk in your jurisdiction. Um, uh, so uh, in that sense, a proportionate approach would say, okay, um, if we don't have active trading rooms in a bank, do we really need um, a strong set of regulations on, on margin requirements for derivative activities? Right? Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. that's where, um, and even the, the advanced models approach um, that, uh, um, I would prefer um, a bank in a small country um, to be to spend most of its time focused on an issue like financial inclusion rather than yes. developing an advanced model um, uh, for risk, which the supervisors may or may not be able to use and the banks may or not uh, use as a risk management tool. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. And, and I guess you, I guess you also work with other global standard setters such as IOSCO and, and, and others. Could, could you talk a little bit about your work with them? Yes. Um, uh, in a very similar um, uh, capacity. So we're on the steering committee of the uh, International Association of Insurance Supervisors, um, and, and we're okay. deeply involved in, in several um, uh, of the committees um, uh, within uh, IOSCO. Um, uh, again, because we, we believe um, that uh, we can only implement those standards properly if we understand how they were developed. Um, uh, yeah. And vice versa, um, we want to have input uh, at the global level um, for the standards that we um, will be required to implement in the future. Right. Okay. Well, that, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, so th thanks for sharing that. Okay. So uh, as, as, um, as, as we all know, uh, there's been very intense interest globally uh, in all matters relating to ESG. I mean, there's been a huge amount of work on going on on that in Europe, for instance. Um, but I know you're also looking at this. So can you talk about the sort of key initiatives uh, that DFSA is undertaking around ESG? Yeah, I can start. I mean, even as we left off with the, the previous topic that uh, – um, from an international standard setter um, uh, perspective. So the, 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 the Basel Committee now has a task force on, on climate-related risk, um, uh, yes, which true, is, yeah. is driving a, a significant level of effort 
uh, right now on, on what climate-related risks, the physical and transitional risks um, that apply to the banking system. Um, uh, we've also joined two uh, dedicated ESG networks. I guess we, we're a member of the network for greening of the financial system. Um, uh, and yeah. we're also a member of the Sustainable Insurance Forum. Um, uh, so those are on a, on a global basis um, uh, that we have quite a bit of interaction uh, already uh, ongoing uh, in, in, that, uh, in that area. Um, but we also have a, a pretty strong pipeline of things going on in the UAE and in the, in the DIFC. That in, in February of last year, we signed um, uh, the UAE Guiding Principles on Sustainable Finance, um, uh, again, to promote appropriate ESG-related reporting and disclosures, um, uh, eligibility requirements, and factors that go into okay. strategy risk management. Um, uh, we're working with the UAE Office of the Special Envoy on, on Climate. Um, uh, so okay. that leads up to COP26 um, uh, this, this year. Um, uh, and in September of last year, we actually published a discussion paper on championing sustainable finance uh, in the DIFC. And I've had direct engagement with several firms, including just this morning, um, uh, a very good uh, conversation with, uh, with HSBC um, on uh, oh, sustainable okay. finance initiatives um, uh, within the DIFC, but impacting the entire uh, region. And so we're going to continue pushing forward to, to develop an, an ESG roadmap here. Climate change and ESG are global uh, issues. Every, every standard setter is taking a, a swing uh, at, uh, at developing something uh, that relates specifically to the industry that, uh, that they're assigned. And every country yeah. is taking um, uh, a good effort, or most countries, we'll say, are taking strong efforts um, uh, to deal with these topics as well. The standards that, that you have, that you're putting in place um, in, in Dubai, are those based off sort of international accords, things like the TCFD, for example, um, but those kind of things? Yes, um, uh, they are based on uh, the international accords, but unfortunately, there's a lot of international accords being developed. <laughs> there are, yes. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it's very difficult to choose which one is your um, primary benchmark. Um, uh, so we're yeah. involved with a, like I said, with the Basel Committee, with IOSCO, IAS, Financial Stability Board, um, uh, et cetera, as well as the uh, uh, the accounting standard setters. I guess with the IFRS um, on disclosures. Yeah. Um, uh, um, so it's uh, it, it's a big issue uh, around the world. I think I think once we get some type of an agreement, even a general agreement on a taxonomy. Um, uh, around yeah. what, what is green, um, what is brown, and what is somewhere in the middle. Um, uh, yeah. that'll, that'll better drive, I think, all of us uh, in a more consistent direction going forward. Okay, so okay, let, let's explore that a bit more. So um, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, because as you've highlighted, there are all different standards, jurisdictions, pretty much doing their own particular interpretation of different standards that are out there. So what do you think it's going to take to drive global ESG standards? So, you know, you can increase comparability between what one jurisdiction is doing with the other or one company is doing versus another. Uh, and how can we make this uh, adoption, you know, truly global and becoming embedded in the global financial system? Well, we've, the, the first step and the most important step has now, I think, been achieved 
by by everyone recognizing this is a problem. Everyone recognizes it's a global problem, um, uh, yeah. uh, and no one anymore is saying is this or is this not uh, an issue. So. So the, the most critical step of everyone recognizing that it is a global problem that, that we need to address and we need to start addressing very quickly, even though um, uh, it's a long-term solution. Um, uh, and that's, that, I think, has is, is pushed us in the right direction. Now we're probably in the, you know, in the, I guess, the phases from your, from your university textbooks into the the storming phase of everyone has an idea and throwing it on the table yeah. uh, and seeing what sticks. And the next phase will probably be more norming um, that, uh, that as people see what is working and what is not working and what's agreeable and what's not agreeable, um, we'll move into more normative phases uh, of, of standardized disclosures, standardized taxonomy and standardized metrics yeah. um, for where we need to be. I mean, in, in, in a previous conversation we had, um, you thought that it would be good if there was a dedicated global standard setter that focused on ESG or indeed if one of the existing ones took that up to drive uh, global standards. Could, could, could you sort of elaborate a bit more on your thoughts about that? So that's, 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 that was a really interesting idea, I thought. You know, and and I, I don't want any of any of the existing standard setters to take any offense because they're all doing incredible work in this area. Um, but but as yes. we, as we you know coalesce around the fact that this this is a, a a critical area and a critical problem for the for the whole globe, um, that one way of getting consistency is to to finally establish okay, let's why don't we have a climate change um, uh, standard setter uh, or um, ESG, I'm not so sure, but climate change um, by itself, okay. uh, I think, would uh, would go a long way to to making it um, um, more standardized. Yeah, yeah. Okay, lovely. Okay, well, let's turn to crypto now. Um, another very uh, something that's very much in the, uh, in the in the public view at the moment. Um, so I know the DFSA has been looking at regulating this area. Uh, you recently did a consultation on security tokens. So can you describe what you're trying to achieve, um, and, and also what way does the DFSA's approach differ from other jurisdictions which are also trying to take a lead on crypto or come up with their own way of regulating it yeah so um i mean the first thing i think we have to recognize that digital assets in the crypto space um have probably passed a test um uh of uh um of viability uh we'll say that i think they're going to be around now um uh for, yeah. for a long time um, uh, maybe not, not every digital asset, not every cryptocurrency uh, will, will survive, um, but many will. Um, uh, so we have to yeah. recognize that they're going to be part of our system and they're going to be part of people's portfolios. We hope they're a, a, a part of people's well-diversified portfolio. And particularly, as you saw the movements yesterday, uh, in, in an extremely timely question today, Justin, but as we saw the movements yeah. yesterday, if you had a large portion of your wealth tied into cryptocurrencies, you lost a lot of money yesterday. Um, uh, and sometimes, sometimes that's a wake-up call um, uh, to to uh, think about: Do I want that level of volatility with me? Um, 
So yeah. we, we, we have uh, emphasized, I think, a, a steady approach. Um, uh, we've, we've done a considerable amount of outreach with the industry. We recognize the future of finance involves digital assets and digitalization in, in general. Um, so we started our, our, our regulatory regime with security tokens, which uh, the market told us this is the, the area that's in most demand, um, that most firms okay. want to launch a security token of some sort because it, it really fits within you know, the existing financial framework. Security tokens and, and, and investments um, uh, are, are close to each other. Um, they're both walking and talking like a duck, and so you can treat them like a duck, um, uh, okay. and that's where we, we started. Um, and that's kind of phase one. Um, uh, phase two uh, will bring us, I think, of all the other type of digital assets together. Um, but uh, yeah. this phase one allows us to test the waters uh, a bit. Uh, it's a complex area um, uh, to, to regulate. Um, and you also you have to decide which, which is worthy of regulation, what is a financial service, what's not a financial service. Um, uh, but but it, it is part of the future of finance, and it, it's a major element of, uh, I think, growth uh, uh, for, for the UAE and for Dubai uh, individually, that uh, the, the innovation strategies uh, here are very well developed, uh, and this will be a core element um, uh, of the future economy. I mean, I guess um, regulating crypto, um, blockchain, and so on. I, I guess that kind of brings it out of the shadows, and and you know, because it, it, uh, it's been going on sort of out out of the sight of regulators. And I guess regulating it will probably further increase uh, further increase its growth as as you know, regulated companies will feel more comfortable dealing with it, as indeed probably investors too. Most of regulation is out to protect a retail investor um, uh, yes. and to make sure that, that they have an adequate disclosure uh, of what the, what the risks uh, are, what, what did they just buy, um, uh, yeah. and what, what type of volatility it has, what type of risk it brings to their portfolio, um, to make sure that their money is protected um, in a client money sense, that, that they're not going to lose their money um, uh, other than the market value of their instrument going up and down. Um, uh, and yeah. to make sure that the firms doing this um, uh, are not being abused by, um, uh, by financial criminals. Um, so those three yeah. areas, the, the disclosure of your risks, um, it's not a deposit, yeah. um, uh, so in, in many forms, but the disclosure of the risks that you've got, um, uh, that your money is protected, and that you're not uh, part of uh, a money laundering scheme. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, now... As, as I'm sure you've seen, there's been a great deal of speculation that decentralized finance or, or DeFi will replace traditional finance or so-called CFI, centralized finance, and central finance, because it offers great efficiency, cuts out the middlemen, gives control back to the user. Uh, what is your view on how this space will evolve? Do you think maybe we'll end up with some sort of hybrid model, you know, between you know centralized finance and some of the characteristics of DeFi? The customers want an ease of doing business. They, they want to access yeah. their, their, their bank account 24 seven. Um, uh, if they wake up at midnight and want to send money to their family, they, sh they want to do that. They want instant gratification um, uh, that, uh, um, uh, that the service was seamless and, and quick. 
uh, and safe. Um, so yeah. uh, I think there will be a hybrid. Um, there's still an element of, of uh, human interaction, maybe maybe less so at the retail level, more so at the wholesale and private wealth um, uh, area yeah. where, where humans need to be involved. But I think the existing financial institutions are adopting themselves. I mean, you saw probably five years worth of uh, uh, technological advancement took place in the last year um, in terms of digital. Yes. Um, you're, you're seeing now the effects. I mean, I think we, I read this this week where banks in the U.S. thought that their 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 labor head count would fall by about 10 percent uh, over the next several years um, uh, as they move away from brick and mortar branches into more uh, digital financial services. Um, uh, we hope that doesn't dif- disadvantage any part of the, the population. Um, so if you're going to yeah. lift yeah. Uh, the brick and mortar branch um, uh, uh, in certain communities, you want to make sure that those people in that community still have access to financial services. Um, uh, and that really goes to, well, I mean, I'm a U.S. person, so I monitor that more closely, but this whole infrastructure oh. plan uh, that's being put forward right now um, uh, by the U.S. administration to make sure people have access um, uh, to um, uh, to digital um, uh, methods of interaction with government, with the private sector, um, uh, and so I, I see that as irreversible now. I mean, if you look at the market value of PayPal, um, you can see that it stacks up against the the top banks in the world. Um, so, yes. so without question, um, uh, fintech has already laid down a marker. Um, that they're here to stay um, uh, and people yeah. value those services. And they're eating away at some areas of, of traditional finance that have been very profitable. Um, uh, you know, and, and in a real sense, every bank in the world has a PayPal probably in the basement. But that's the problem. It's been in the basement. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, nothing PayPal does, uh, a bank couldn't do. PayPal just simply does it better um, uh, for yeah. for the particular um, uh, segment of, of financial uh, activity. Um, so banks will have to learn uh, along the way of how to move money quickly, efficiently, safely, um, and at a lower cost um, uh, uh, to match it. Okay. Now, um, there's been a, been a lot of excitement in the financial sector, and you've, you've, I think you reflected that in, your, in the previous question, over instruments such as stable coins and even non, non-fungible tokens, which at the moment are more associated with art, but you know they, they could be used for creating all kinds of new financial products as well. So what is your view on that? And do, do you think these new coins or instruments will revolutionize finance and maybe maybe you could elaborate a little bit on how you think that might happen yeah i i mean i i do think stablecoin uh is something that uh um, that will grow and grow exponentially i would say uh over a, a, the next few years and, and particularly in the whole area of financial inclusion um i think this is um, uh, one way to reach out into um, uh, underserved communities, um, because you you find in underserved communities, you know maybe maybe very few people have a bank account, but they all have a phone, um, uh, yeah. and and if you can find ways through Stablecoin, which um, actually eliminates that volatility of investment that that uh, um, a 
non-stable coin, uh, we'll say, uh, for lack of a better term, yeah. other crypto uh, asset that you eliminate the volatility of the investment. Um, uh, and so you're allowing uh, a transfer uh, of, of uh, finance, a, a transfer of wealth um, uh, at what I think can be a, a much quicker um, uh, settlement period um, to those that might be financially excluded now uh, and at a significantly yeah. reduced cost. Um, uh, so I view that as a, a significant development um, and something that will that will continue to grow. Um, and obviously, yeah. as, as they as those stablecoins solve the issue of, um, uh, of financial crime, um, where people are able to hide uh, under um, uh, a certain crypto asset. Um, uh, that I, I think that will uh, uh, increase the the use um, again exponentially. So, how do you see the role of supervisors evolving in the future? So, you know, we're talking about a, a world where there's increasing automation, real time digitized reporting, smart contracts, machine coded regulations, distributed ledger technologies, and so on. I mean, could we one day? largely see supervision being carried out by algorithms, for example? You know, I think there's, um, uh, and we're already working on a number of these uh, initiatives at the, at the DFSA with the, the use of AI and machine learning. We're still at the, I think, at the very, very early nascent stages. But this allows us, I think, artificial intelligence and machine learning allows us um, uh, to have more routine functions done um, in an automated fashion. And allows us then to use our uh, existing resources, our human um, uh, element, to do the more complex um, uh, analysis that uh, that still cannot be done um, through automation. So um, definitely, I think every every regulator, every financial uh, institution, and really every business um, uh, is is going to be using more and more technology uh, as we move forward. And we also then as a regulator have to understand what 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 uh, technologies the banks are using uh, and what risks that yeah. brings. All right. Because, yeah. you know, you might not have then a future rogue person in the bank. If the artificial intelligence um, is, is running rogue, then you've got uh, a major issue um, uh, in front yeah. of you. Um, and so people have to understand um, uh, how those how those decisions are being made. Uh, and then that also involves, you know, where do you hire the people who understand that? Um, you know, mm -hmm. that's probably not from our existing population. Um, uh, and so when you look at future risks um, uh, in the financial system, when you look at the cloud, when you look at, at, at ESG, climate change, um, cyber, yeah. um, uh, artificial intelligence, money laundering, that every regulator is going to have to decide where do, where do I hire the expertise or how do I develop yeah. the expertise to allow me to know what the financial services industry is doing? I mean, do, do you, I mean, you mentioned artificial intelligence, the potential for sort of AI programs to run rogue um, in, in, in a way, in, in a funny kind of way, possibly replacing humans in terms of, um, you know, causing misbehavior and problems. So yeah. do, do you have any thoughts around uh, governance that should be put around AI, to, you know, precisely to make sure that something like that doesn't happen, or even that it doesn't, you know, discriminate against certain demographics in the population uh, for giving out loans, for example, or mortgages, things like that. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it will be part of the governance structure. So you, you will very likely have board members, if you want to start from the top, who, who, uh, uh, who understand um, uh, the technology aspect of, of your institution, because that's a critical risk factor. Um, uh, the, the, uh, um, the COO of most organizations um, is, is elevated uh, now uh, and even more so in the future in operational risk. And operational resilience um, uh, is um, uh, a, a growing area of expertise that's part of every governance system, um, where that might have been the last item on the agenda um, for many board meetings or many exco meetings, and that was the number one item uh, on the agenda. Yeah. I mean, we're we're very happy. I think that that the the financial services industry showed remarkable financial and operational resilience through the pandemic. Um, and I no, guarantee did, yes. you, if you went a, a year ago and, and, and asked any bank in the world, uh, really could, what, what do you think if you sent all your staff home for six months, um, <laughs> would, would you, <laughs> no one would have said that's a good idea. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but it worked. Um, uh, and now we just have to uh, um, uh, realize what's the next um, uh, the next area of risk. Um, and so it probably does lie in the cloud area, in the cyber area, um, and in the operational yeah. resilience area. Uh, and that's where yeah. uh, our, our future is, should be directed. And on that note, I'd like to finish by thanking Brian for sharing his insights on regulation and the DFSA. And if you'd like to listen to more podcasts about regulation, please visit globalriskregulator.com. And you can subscribe to our podcasts via Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it. And finally, I hope you stay safe and well. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.